All right, all right, it's time. If you've been looking for something different, not just different, but better, stop looking. If you look for content that's real, that's authentic, that speaks the truth, the kind of truth that'll force you to think for yourself, empower you to go for it, and just get more out of life, stop looking, man. It's here. As a matter of fact, this is not a podcast for the weak of heart, for the virtue signalers or the frauds that are out there. This is for people that are real, that are willing to put the work in, roll up their sleeves, listen to the truth, and do something about it, all right? My name is Sandy Sarami. I'm your host and along with my right-hand guy, my co-host, Mr. Ron Marvo. We want to welcome you to episode one of Icons, Influencers, and Inspirations. This is a podcast completely committed to you, our listeners, and to bringing the most iconic, influential, and inspirational guests to you each and every episode. As a matter of fact, on today's episode, we feature Brian Westbury. He's an internationally renowned economist and an expert on global finance and investing. He currently serves as the chief economist at First Trust Advisors, and he's the number one ranked economic forecaster in the U.S., so that means pay attention to what he has to say. I want to give a special thank you to our sponsor partners over at JL Digital Marketing out of Louisville, Kentucky. They're the absolute beasts in digital marketing. So if you're a business owner looking to dominate your market, time to move the crowd, crush the competition, and count your money. So check them out at jnlmarketing.com. That's J-A-N-D-L marketing.com. We also want to thank our friends over at Traction and the crew led by CEO Dave Boyle, showing dealers and independent repair shops how to keep drivers safer with the most comprehensive data and technology-driven platform in the business. Visit them at tireprofiles.com. So without any further ado, let's get to Mr. Brian Westbury. All right, everybody, welcome back to Icons, Influencers, and Inspirations. This is our first show of 2022. Uh, I'm wildly excited. Ron knows how excited I am about uh, today's episode because we have an opportunity to talk to somebody who is not only an Eagle Scout, uh, but he's been ranked the number one economic forecaster in the country. Uh, he's a top five global keynote speaker. Uh, he's done approximately 200 plus speeches a year for quite some time. Uh, he is currently the chief economist at First Trust Advisors uh, over the course of about the last 16 plus years based out of Chicago. He is also a 1982 graduate of the University of Montana with a BA in economics. And I kidded him before that he graduated on the John Dutton Scholarship Program, uh, which I know gave him a bit of a chuckle. He's also a graduate of the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University with a uh, MA in finance and organizational behavior. Uh, he's written two books, which I highly recommend. You can find them on Books A Million. You can find them on Amazon. Uh, the first book is It's Not As Bad As You Think, published in 2009 by Wiley & Sons. And the second book is The New Era of Wealth, published originally in 1999 by McGraw-Hill. So uh, he's an avid fly fisherman. He's a cigar lover. And right now, trying to figure out whether he wants to spend more of his golden years at the beach or spend more time in the mountains. I know he spent a ton of time uh, in the mountains as well, but please welcome Brian Westbury. Brian, how are you? Hey, Sandy, I am really, really well, and it's great to be with you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all your listeners. Appreciate that, my friend. Um, happy New Year to you, too. And I tell you, <clears throat> I I think that there's a spiritual connection here. I don't think that there are any accidents or coincidences in the world. And, and when you talk about the concept right. of ideas, which we'll get into later on in the podcast, um, I, I think this is a little bit of divine intervention that I've stumbled upon uh, what I'm going to call the genius of Brian Westbury. Uh, and the reason I call it the genius of Brian Westbury is really simple. 
I think you have an incredible um, brain, but you're able to articulate in a way that everybody can understand. And that, that's a real talent. I think that's a gift uh, from our friend above. And so that is really what has yeah. drawn me to you, quite honestly, uh, over the course of the last few weeks. I, I stumbled upon your speech. Uh, the, the great Dr. Orn at Hillsdale College hosted um, uh, CCA, the Center for Constructive Alternatives 2, where we talked about the Great Reset, which is our topic today. Um, and, you know, without any further, let me just stop for just a second. I got my right-hand guy, Mr. Ron Marvo here, gracing the screen. He's the good-looking dude <clears throat> on the screen to the left. Um, so I don't want to forget to introduce him. He is my, my cohort in crime. But I don't think yeah. that there's any accidents, Brian. I think that, that divine intervention brings people together, and I think it was timely right. that I discovered, uh, Brian, and, and, you know, what you've been speaking about over the course of the last few weeks. Let's talk a little bit about your background before we get into it, Brian. Can you tell us a little bit about how you grew sure. up and, and who was an influence on you as you grew up? Yeah, you know, without going into all the little minor details, I, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My dad was getting his master's in uh, hospital administration there at the time. We ended up moving to Gainesville, Florida at a very young age. He took over Shan's teaching hospital at, uh, in Gainesville at the University of Florida, which was a huge job. Uh, I, there's actually a whole big story about that because he quit that job to go get his PhD. And, and, I, and I think part of that was, I think he made $24,000 a year. I remember us getting our second car. You know, it was a Ford Falcon, uh, you know, and, and, and so we lived a, a good middle-class lifestyle but whoever's the, the head of that hospital today is making millions would never quit that job to go get a PhD. So the world has changed in so many different ways. And then he ended up becoming, uh, after his PhD, a professor at the University of Missouri. And so I really grew up in Missouri, the, the show me state. Sure. And maybe it's, maybe it's partly those, uh, those Midwest roots that I have. Also, my dad, by the way, was a supporter of Barry Goldwater way back in the okay. day. Yep. He, he was a, a precinct committee man. Uh, so he was active. I, I, I was young. I didn't really understand all of this. But I, around the dinner table, we must have grown up with a lot of, you know, talk about virtue and liberty. We were uh, Methodists. We, we went to church, you know, every week. It was a, a super important part of our family upbringing. Uh, and then I was a Boy Scout. And uh, you mentioned it, that I was, I'm an Eagle Scout. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really, uh, once you're an Eagle Scout, you're always an Eagle Scout, you, you yeah. know. And, and, and so uh, I, I, that part of my life, growing up, I'm sure, around the table, talking about hospitals and education and PhDs and politics uh, and, and being in Boy Scouts made me a true patriot. I, 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 used, I don't use that word in a radical sense. I love America, like to the deepest core of my being, and it's, and it's that part of uh, my, my bringing up. Now, in the midst of uh, becoming an Eagle Scout, I went to Philmont uh, in New Mexico, which is a big Boy Scout ranch. Mm -hmm. I did some rock climbing while I was there. I fell in love with it. I was a wrestler, so I could always do fingertip pull-ups, which you really need to do when you rock climb. And, and I used to go to Colorado to climb in the summers, and then there were so many people there. It was like Disneyland. 
So I visited my buddy in Missoula, Montana, and we had a five-mile canyon to ourselves. And I'm like, this is where I want to go to school. And, and to be absolutely honest about it, I ended up skiing, fishing, floating, and climbing. I have no idea how I graduated <laughs> uh, because, because that, is, uh, that is God's playground out there. And I enjoyed every bit of it. And I still love the mountains. Uh, but then, and then I'm, I'm going to shorten it up from here because I don't want to go too far. But, but I graduated in 1982, and the unemployment rate was 13%. I loved Montana, but you had to rob a bank to get a teller's job. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you couldn't get a job. And so uh, I, I wanted to, I fell in love with economics. The very first class I ever took, that's all I ever wanted to do. I'm, I'm the most blessed guy in, in the Amen. career department that I know of because that's all I've ever done. And, and what happened to me is I came back to Chicago where my parents had moved uh, and that's another story, but I, I went to this massive cocktail party of all these hospital administrators, and I, I ended up, I, was, I popped a beer next to this couple, and it, and it was a, a, a man and a, a, a hospital administrator and his wife from Hannibal, Missouri. So this couldn't have been more than a 60-bed hospital. He was true, perfect Midwest, like, you know, Hannibal, Missouri guy, you put the picture in your mind. He, this is not Hollywood. This is not DC. This is Midwest. We need more of that, Brian. We need a lot more of he, those folks. He, exactly. And, and we sat down and talked and there were all these, you know, high fluting people all over the room. And I just fell in love with this young, this couple, they weren't young. And he goes, you know, I know a guy that works at the Harris bank. Let me write a letter. And he actually wrote the letter. And, um, and it was, and, and I went in, they go, well, good luck because we're actually cutting the, the department. Anyway, long story short, a lady quit. I, I ended up getting the job. I was, I was the, I call myself the, the assistant to the junior assistant economist. Um, <laughs> and, and all I did back then was keep data by hand on cards. Oh like by gosh, hand, yeah. pencil. I had to every time they do, they they revised data, I had to erase it all. And then I made charts by hand to go to the printer when we published our little pieces. Yep. And I never wrote them; I just made the charts. And then slowly but surely, I grew in my career. And one thing about sticking to it is is that is that eventually you learn it. And I I feel like I I've been totally blessed to be able to grow from the ground floor, like literally the mailroom, in a sense, in, in an economics department, keeping the data by hand, all the way to becoming a chief economist now of a, a pretty significant money management firm. And so uh, I, I've met amazing people along the way. I, I worked two years in Washington, D.C. I was the chief economist of the Joint Economic Committee. Yep. I worked for Connie, Connie Mack, who was the senator from Florida. Uh, as a result there, I met the Wall Street Journal editorial people. I know Art Laffer, Larry Kudlow, uh, Jude Winiski, who used to run the Wall Street Journal, uh, Bob Bartley, yeah, who ran it. Yeah, just, him. you know, superstars. It, it, yeah, well, I, and, and, and it, it was all because I ended up getting this job at the Harris Bank because of the help of this, of this Midwest, you know, hospital a gentleman. A gentleman. director, gentleman, a true gentleman. Um, from Missouri. And so 
it's it's weird how things work, you know, and everybody wants to look over everybody's shoulder and look for the more handsome or the more beautiful or the more powerful or the better dressed. And that's not where everything always starts. And, and so it, for me, it started literally having a beer with a guy from Missouri. You know, my upbringing mattered too, but, and, and then him following through on a promise that he made that night. It was just, uh, I, I, I'm, I pinch myself when I think of my career. Well, you know, Brian, you reference him doing what he said he was going to do, and, and that is such a hallmark of the Midwestern yeah. attitudes and philosophies that I bump into when I travel the country, and it's it's refreshing, and it shouldn't be so refreshing, right? right. I totally agree. It shouldn't be an anomaly. It should be the norm. Uh, it's funny because right. it brings me back to you know an episode of Yellowstone, watching John Dutton change right. his tire on the side of the road for a woman and her son. Uh, and he basically right. says, hey, around here, we just do it because it's the right thing to do. She was offering to pay him to change a flat tire. Right. Uh, but it spoke volumes about that Midwestern attitude. And, and so um, I completely identify with where you're coming from. But again, I don't think there are any accidents, right? I don't think that right. that you incidentally end up sitting next to that gentleman and having that kind of a conversation. Uh, I believe that the man upstairs puts us on a path, Absolutely. right? And it's up to totally us to make decisions and take actions, you know? Yeah, and that's why I end up here, Sandy, because you feel that way. and We both have that connection, and we never knew it. And, and by the way, I do radio every morning, every Wednesday morning with Hugh Hewitt, mm -hmm. uh, who found me the same way. Yep. And, and his email to me was, hey, wait a minute. You are an adjunct professor at Wheaton College. Is that a worldview thing, or is that just because it's close by? And I'm like, it's a worldview thing. He goes, we got it. Like go. And, and so many people don't understand that. It's, it's, it, sometimes to people, I think it sounds like a foreign language or some kind of code, but, but it really is a world view. It's a way of life. And what's great about it is you're attracted to people that have that world view, and that's cool. It's great to be here with you. Well, Brian, I, I'm, listen, I'm beyond humbled and honored. Ron and I have been talking about it for the past couple of days. We've been really excited to have the chance to speak with you. But I have to tell you that when I watched, and again, I got I to gotta reference Dr. Larry Arm because he is, he's a hero, quite honestly, in yep. my opinion. And I think you share the same sentiment uh, because I've heard you speak about Larry and, and I've never had the opportunity to meet him. I will shake that man's hand at some point in the future. I will manifest yep. that because I believe that what he stands for and what he's doing for the young adults in our country right now is, is absolutely required if we're going to get out of this yep. mess that we're in, you know, economically as a country. Um, and totally so, agree. so when I heard you speak and I listened to all seven of the speeches uh, at CCA too, and I highly rec recommend anybody to go out there. We talk about Google and that, sh uh, you know, Google it uh, CCA two at Hillsdale college, the great reset, which is really going to be the topic of what we're talking about here. You called right. um, your speech, the only or the true alternative to the great reset. And I want to dive into what you spoke about at CCA2 because it really hit home with me. And I was gravitated, gravitating towards you immediately. I listened to that speech two or three times because I said there's so much in there that, that is in alignment with what I believe we need to have right. happen in this country today. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 1, 4 through 11 and, and right. what King Solomon said, and, and I'll let you take it from there. He said what? Yeah, he, I mean, I paraphrase, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, and, you know, man doesn't change. And that's partly, I, I, 
I am now an evangelical Christian. I, I, was, I was born in the kind of in the Methodist kind of family, but we mm-hmm. read the Bible. I, you know, I went every word, every week, heard the heard heard the uh, the pastor speak, and and so all that seeps into you over the years. Mm-hmm. And so there are certain things in the Bible that you know I I I can't quote the Bible as well as a lot of people, but. But that one comes to my the mind. Best of all these time. three folks here, I can tell you that. I promise you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and so so, but but there is nothing new under the sun. And and the reason I reference that is because uh, we've we've all heard of this idea now, the Great Reset. And I actually have to tell you, Sandy, in, until Doctor Arn, until Hillsdale College asked me to do this speech, that they. And, 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 the, and the CCA was about the Great Reset, I thought the Great Reset was, was a conspiracy theory. Yep. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're on Twitter, like people are talking about Bill Gates wanting to put a microchip in your veins. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I, I do believe that currencies are always under attack, but that we're going to replace the dollar with the SDR. And we're not, you know, you're, you're, all your money's going to be controlled by a global trilateral commission like that kind of and and i thought it was that and then so when they asked me to speak on this i of course said yes and then i went and ordered the book and it's a real book and it's written by klaus schwab who is the the founder of the world economic forum Mm -hmm. and most people will go okay what's that well those are the people that have that davos meeting and so this is where all the heads of Google, the finance minister of Germany, the finance treasurer of, of China, all the, the richest, and Bill Gates goes all the time, and all the hedge fund uh, billionaires. And, and they are the elite of the elite of the elite uh, in terms of power and money, and they go to this Davos meeting. And so Klaus Schwab is the head of that, and he's the one who wrote the book. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden I went, this just isn't a conspiracy theory. So what's in this book and i'm going to to paraphrase the book and maybe it's fair maybe it's not fair but it's what i got out of it and and so first of all think of the title covid19 colon the great reset now this book was published in july of 2020 first we didn't know, first red flag for me right exactly we didn't know anything about covid at the time i mean we we had like well we knew a little it was a, it was a virus. It was out there, but but all of a sudden, there's a book laying out why because of the virus we had to change our whole world and and the relationship between government and man. And the argument I'm going to simplify it goes like this: climate change causes more respiratory viruses, which by the way is not true. But nonetheless, Thank that's you. where that's where it starts. Climate change causes more respiratory viruses. Respiratory viruses unequally affect people in the world, as, mm-hmm. and they and they affect lower incomes more than higher incomes. So that drives inequality, and then inequality in 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 a lot of the progressive mindset is one of the reasons that creates climate change. Right, and then therefore climate change now causes more respiratory viruses, and it's this circle that you can never get out of, and the only way to fix it, according to the book, is for the government to take over massive parts of our world, our economy, our decision-making, redistribute um, uh, massive amounts of of global GDP, and that's what the Great Reset is about. And so to go back to King Solomon, 
there's nothing new under the sun. See, the Marxists were trying to do this. Yep. They didn't have the Great Reset. They didn't have COVID-19. Uh, we tried to do they it again. They didn't have social the, media, Brian. <laughs> right, exactly. They, we tried to do it in the, in the New Deal with the, great, with the Depression. Uh, we, we, we tried to do it after every war. The, 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 there's nothing new. The, guy, the, the, the progressive politicians... Uh, they've existed forever, if you will. We we just call them that today. But but people that they almost the, the desire for feudalism, for for ultimate power over other people, has been with us forever. And and so there's nothing new under the sun. And that's what I meant. And the Great Reset, it's it's not a conspiracy theory. It's it's just laying out those same historical ideas and desire, political desires in a different argument. Yeah, no, you, you are spot on. And it's funny because when I thought about what you had said during your speech about the fact that this is nothing new, they've recycled some, some you know, literally centuries-old philosophy, uh, but they have new tools. And I yep. think that's what's new. They've got new tools that they're going to employ uh, in the form of social media uh, in the form of alliances, in my opinion, between big media, uh, government, I, I see, you know, and again, I'm not going to disappear down the rabbit hole, but when I see CNN and the reporting or the, what they call reporting uh, on the screen, really as an, a, a, an extension of the federal government, that's the kind of stuff that really causes pause for me and concern. Right. The other thing yeah. that I think is interesting, Ryan, I, excuse me, uh, Brian, I think it's interesting to think about this is, you know, you talked about the Trilateral Commission, and we were talking yesterday in our prep call, and he said, you're not sure if I would remember that. I'm, I'm only a couple of years behind you. So, yes, <laughs> I, I do recall the Trilateral Commission, and I know what the um, conspiracy theorists say out there. But you know, using that as just a base point, the reason I think the conspiracy theorists exist and why it's become so overblown over the last few years is because there's such a fundamental lack of transparency at the governmental right. level globally. Okay. Yep, totally okay. agree. Interesting irony is that Klaus Schwab and his crew and the book kind of pull the transparency piece out and they just come out and say, this is what we're doing. Yeah, and so exactly. It's almost like they're using their transparency as a shield. They're saying, we're right. not making any bones about this. This is what we fundamentally believe, even though they're using, I think, uh, a lot of red herrings to advance their cause. Right. Right. I think that, that they're using transparency as a shield. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, just to go back to your quick comment about the press, uh, Laura Logan uh, just made a tweet the other day. So I, I hopefully I can, it, it's a picture, so I hopefully I can do this in words. Sure. But you have the, the politician and then the press, uh, and, and the press has a microphone and they're yelling a big question mark at the politician, and then behind the press is all the people. Yep. And then and then she goes, that was then. This is today. The politician is standing there. The, the reporter now, the journalist, is now facing all the people with the microphone. Absolutely. Magnifying what the politician is saying. And so the press and, and Alex Berenson just today wrote a Substack uh, article about how the press has not done its job. And and so it's a, it's a fascinating world. One quick thing, and I, and this just to, you know, we, neither of us go down the rabbit hole. I think we look at things uh, 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 very, uh, we, we, we are, we are questioning. Pragmatically. But we, don't, 
But, you know, we hear, we hear this thing called the deep state. And I am going to tell you, I believe in the deep state. Mm-hmm. But it probably isn't the same deep state that some people talk about. What I believe is that bureaucracy has become so powerful and big, and these are lifelong uh, uh, employees in these bureaucracies who have incentives to gain more power, to get more budgets, uh, to get bigger Absolutely. budgets, to control the, 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 the people that, are, that fall under their agencies. It's, a, it's human nature. But what's giving them all this power is all the money and the regulations that we have built up over the years. So, so the deep state is just a result of us letting the government grow. Absolutely. It's not, it's not George Washington's nephew who got cut out of the family will and joined <laughs> up with, with, right. with, with Abraham Lincoln's second cousin who also was cut out of the will. And, they, and they're trying to you know, steal the world from everybody. That's what kind of what I think about the Trilateral Commission. It's like these people that control the whole world. No, these are just bureaucrats who, through their own self-interest, make government bigger and more powerful and more intrusive than it should be. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you know what tends to happen for the common, uh, you know, average middle-class uh, American uh, and middle-class global citizen, which is you know the, the entire middle class globally is under attack right now, as we both I think would agree. I think right. when they see that lack of transparency and then they start to see names like Rockefeller, Gates, um, right. uh, Bezos, Buffett, uh, I'll use the guy who I think personifies evil, quite honestly, is George Soros. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when you hear those names and there are all these secretive meetings that seem very clandestine on the surface, uh, they're going to draw their own conclusions. And that's where that fundamental lack of transparency becomes problematic. Totally. For the average citizen. Totally agree. And I think, and I think if people... Yeah, and if we had a smaller government, I, I'm, I'm going to repeat this probably five times today. If we had a smaller government, these problems would be minimal. And, mm-hmm. you know, just as a, as, as a quick aside, people don't realize how much government has grown. You know, government runs around calling everybody greedy. So today it's the meat packers that are greedy. Well, government, not now I exclude defense, not, not because I'm trying to hide anything, but just to get to the core of government, the, mm-hmm. the non-defense part of government. In 1930, it was 2.5% of GDP. Today, it's 27% of GDP. Staggering. Yeah, if you do the math, that means government has, has grown 10 times faster than the economy over mm-hmm. the last 90 years. Yep. That, they're the most greedy institution on the face of the earth, by far, uh, is, is government. It's funny, when you mentioned that uh, previously, and, and I thought about that, and you, you try and extrapolate exactly how did that happen. And I don't believe that it's, it's necessarily a conscious effort. Well, on the left, <laughs> we could, we could certainly say it's a conscious effort to grow right. government and have a more uh, um, uh, intrusive role in our lives as individuals, right. certainly from the left. But you raised the point that Democrats and Republicans alike have, wa- alike have watched this happen. And I think right. it becomes a byproduct of a lot of the pork that goes into the budget, a lot of the pet projects. Right. Uh, we talked about a certain senator, I'm not going to name him, who, whose vote, I believe, was, was swayed at the very end because of a certain uh, um, amendment that was made to a bill 
that provided a right. significant level of funding to something that his wife was involved with. Those are the kinds of things that happen. And because they are happening on a compound level at such a high altitude, uh, I think that's where it ends up happening. It's not one simple thing. It's a compound effect over time. I totally agree. And then, you know, Sandy, I mean, we, I'm, we don't have enough time to, um, there's been books and books and books written on these kinds of things. But why is it that government, you know, like just by, like everybody wants to grow. If you start a business, you want to grow. If you, if you, you want more customers, you want to please more people. Well, government's in a sense, no different. Uh, and I wish, I, I wish they were, but they, but they aren't. And so oftentimes we hear people go, well, you're there. You just got to get something done. You have to do something. And, and people start believing that government can fix all the world's problems. And, you know, we look at COVID today and, and we haven't fixed it. And, and yet government keeps telling us that, oh, this, now this will fix it. This will fix it. Education keeps getting worse and worse and worse. We've, we've spent $25 trillion on, on the wealth, on the great society kind of welfare programs, $25 trillion. And we're, we're now looking at six, fifth, sixth, seventh generation welfare recipients. I mean, I, I, I believe we are brother's keeper. However, we're doing it wrong. And, and, and in fact, we're, we're, we're making things worse, not better. And that's where it becomes like a dog chasing its tail because Mm -hmm. the government grows and they claim they're going to fix a problem. They make the problem worse. And their answer is to just grow the government even more. And Republicans have done this. Democrats have done this. The, the, the 20 years of, of the last 90 that I just mentioned that was different was Reagan and then Clinton. Right. And with, with an exception in the middle. I think right, we yeah, agree. Bush in the middle. Bush won exactly. was a disaster in terms of a president totally. economically. And, and it's yep. funny because you know, he, was, he was lionized and revered, you know, and, and listen, right. a, a war hero, and I believe a good American, but boy, what, what a atrocious four-year period that was economically for this country. Right, right. And by the way, just, you know, to go back to this great reset, we, politicians aren't going to use that phrase. I mean, Klaus Schwab may, but, but they use build back better which if you think about, you know, the phrase isn't that much, it's different words. Not but, just in the United well, States either, Brian. I mean, you, right. you have you have a Boris Johnson referencing Build Back Better, the uh, premier of Australia, right? The, I mean, right. we're all using the term. Yeah, exactly. So they have found that term to, to be better than the Great Reset for whatever reason. You know, I'm sure they market it and do test groups and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, but it's all the same. It, it is the Great Reset agenda. Climate change, uh, inequality. I mean, if you listen to AOC, she says that the violation of indigenous rights in America is, mm. is what led to climate change. And really what there's, that's, again, this is not a conspiracy. I'm not going to say it's code, but it's, but it's her way of saying capitalism causes climate problems. Capitalism causes causes inequality. The minute the settlers overran the the Indians, the world went to heck. And and that's that's their model, their mantra of what's wrong with with the American society. 
A hundred percent. Let's let's digress for a second. We were talking before about about the fact that there's nothing new under the sun. <clears throat> this is really right. recycled Marxism, uh, a, a communism uh, in in at its core. Right. Uh, and you talk about one of the great influences on you, uh, you know, in in von Mises. Talk a little bit about Ludwig von Mises, uh, the book he wrote, Socialism, and and let's yep. talk to the audience a little bit about you know things that you have taken from that that book and from von Mises, you know, in total. Yeah, so just, and this is a great uh, spot to just say, I, I have been an avid reader my whole entire life. And, and you can, speaking of rabbit holes, people can go down rabbit holes of certain kinds of books, but, but we really need to, to broaden our horizon. So my life changed, you know, I was a college kid, University of Montana, we, we were not a, a, a conservative school it was no Hillsdale. Um, I, I was I was more on the conservative side than most of my peers. Uh, but but when I got to the Harris Bank, that's where I started in Chicago. Uh, the library they were going to shut. The, they had a big library. Boy, it was banking was good back then. In mm -hmm. it, in at nine, out at three, have a library of your own. You know, and uh, TD Bank and retail banking. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they had a library, and one of the books there was Friedrich Hayek's book, Road to Serfdom. That book changed my life. And then I said, well, who, where, who did he learn from? And that's when I found out Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises, uh, they're both Austrians, uh, taught Friedrich Hayek. Uh, he, Friedrich Hayek won the Nobel Prize, so mm -hmm. did Milton Friedman. The three of those people, and I've read just about any word they've ever written i even dig through old bookstores and found speeches by Mises to mont pelerin etc anyway but but uh, his book socialism i went there when larry arn asked me to speak at hillsdale because Mises is able to go to the root of of things and so this is uh, this is what why you brought this up uh it, it Mises it talks about this this phrase called having like and we'll translate it to our world today, it's ownership, all right? He was always really specific with words, but I'll just say ownership. So how do you own something? And if we go back to the very beginning of, of mankind, if you will, there was only two ways to own something. Be the first one to get there and claim it or steal it, all right, from somebody who already had it. Mm -hmm. and, and so over hundreds, thousands of years, Everything in the world was stolen. Violence was how was how were, were resources were redistributed. Mm -hmm. Now, I could, I could argue there were settlers in the U.S. who weren't violent. They just moved in, and the Indians moved out. Others who were violent. But the bottom line is, the Indians were here first. I, I have no doubt about it. And and then the settlers came in, and it was and the ownership was changed. Mm -hmm. Even though Indians. I don't think really had the same idea of ownership as, as the West did. But, but so the, the, the whole point of Mises saying this was that violence was how things were redistributed, how assets were owned, how, how things were had. Mm -hmm. and, 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 he, and we don't like violence. Like human beings forever and ever have always never wanted to have violence. So, so what we have tried to do over the, the, the millennia is put in law to stop the violence. Yep. And so I, I bring up uh, Moses coming down from, uh, uh, from the mountain, and he's got the Ten Commandments, and one of them is, thou shalt not steal. 
all right? Then, I mean, and that wasn't the first attempt because, the, you know, other people had laws before that. But thou shalt not steal. Why? Because stealing is, is violence. It's, it's wrong, all right? And, and then we, you know, go, um, we're fast-forwarding through history. We had the Magna Carta, which finally gave peasants and serfs rights mm-hmm. relative to the kings and the dukes and the earls. Uh, then we came up with the, U- the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And I believe those are the pinnacle of mankind's thought about how to put law in and, and, and stop the violence. Because that's what we're after is peace. Now, what's interesting is how many people look back at that history and go, oh, well, law, it just legalized violence. Because, because unless you put the law in on day one of mankind... You know, and by the way, nobody would have owned anything anyway at that point because nobody claimed anything yet. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, it's if you think about this, it's artificial. It's always artificial. If the law went in in 1776, if the law went in in 1749, if the law went in in 1849, the ownership would have been different over all of those. The question is not whether it was fair at that moment. The question is, here we are over 200 years later, and has that made things fair? And, and so, so my belief is that, if you, especially if you look at the U.S., Sam Walton, milking his family's cow, went to, went to the, the service during World War II and became, you know, started a, a five and dime and became a billionaire, changed the retail industry. Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos changed it again. Oprah Winfrey uh, uh, changed daytime TV, became a billionaire. So each one of them, because the law was there, uh, allowing them to benefit from their hard work, uh, changed, reimagined, built back better the, 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 the U.S. economy. It's different today because Oprah existed. And so what I would argue is that law gives people an opportunity to change the ownership through entrepreneurship, through the, the fire of invention, and, and, and we, we Brian, have the you, same time you we speak that though, Just to interrupt you, you speak very specifically about, um, I believe it was, let me reference this right way, the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, all right, where you talk about, and, and Lincoln referenced it, you want to talk a little bit about what that is and why it's so important for people to remember and understand? Sure. You know, Abraham Lincoln was brilliant. And mm-hmm. reading his speeches, like, you know, I, I know the Gettysburg Address is famous, but, but he gave uh, probably to 40 people, who knows, but this chat about how America became so great. I mean, we, even back then, people were wearing watches from Europe and spices from India. And he goes, mm-hmm. how does all this happen? And, and he goes through, you know, we had to invent a language. We had to invent you know, the ability to write and share history. But but he specifically puts one thing about the U.S. in there, and that's Article 1, uh, Section 8, Clause 8. It's the only time the word right is used in the Constitution. And what it does is it gives the right of ownership of having to a writer or an inventor. And so, so at that point, when Jeff Bezos comes up with one click, because of the Constitution, he has the right to own that. No one can steal it from him. And, and that clause right there is what, allowed, uh, what allows America to create wealth. No longer is violence the way to get something. 
it's hard work. It's ingenuity. And it's, it's the fuel. You said it. It's the fuel of self-interest. You quoted Lincoln, right? The fuel of right. self-interest, which was, in essence, fired up the creative genius of the country. Yeah. The way, right? yeah, the way Lincoln said it, the fuel of interest to the fire, it added the fuel of interest, self-interest, to the fire of invention. It's such and, a and it's, eloquent way to put it. It's incredible. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and uh, uh, um, gosh, why am I blanking on his first name? His last name's Novak. He's passed away now. But it was, it was because of him that I found that essay by, by Lincoln. And uh, he's a, a, he was a good Catholic uh, and uh, economic and political writer. Um, but he pulled that out of Lincoln, and, and it was just brilliant. And so that's, that's right. Excuse me, was that know, John Novak? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, um, yep, perfect. And, and so what's interesting about this to me is that we know that when the Constitution was written that, that you know, blacks weren't allowed to vote. Women weren't allowed to vote. Right. In, all, in many, now, by the way, these were all state laws at the time, but in many states, not all, blacks weren't allowed to own property. Right. This was wrong, like the wrong period. Like, no, no doubt about it. The, the great thing about the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights it'll, is that it, for the first time in the world, that was allowed to be changed, and, and we were able to move forward in a different and freer world. Because mm -hmm. in a feudal world, that never would change. Uh, the Magna Carta was pretty, pretty good, but it wouldn't have happened there. And, and so, so and I know William Wilberforce, was able to end slavery in the UK, but in the United States, we moved to emancipation. We moved to the civil rights. We, mm -hmm. it was a lot of fighting, a lot of, of battle, but we got there. And so the, my whole point would be that the law, the, even though it codified a set of ownership that, that you, anybody could argue, by the way, if you put the law in on Thursday, somebody stole something on Wednesday. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, why are most laws? Why are mo most laws created in the first place? Because something predates it that was causal. Right. So right, exactly. And so you know, I don't want to beat all this up too much, but it's because me, but Mises hits it on the head. And the question is: Is do you want that law to keep making opportunity for people because they get the ownership of their own hard work, mm -hmm. or or do you want to go back? And, and try to pierce the law with government power and redistribute assets. And, 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 and I believe that an economic science tells me that the more we try to redistribute, the, the, the more we undermine economic growth and opportunity for all Americans, or if you want to think of the world, every citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's amazing because as I think through <clears throat> so many of the things that you shared, uh, so generously, and I thank you again. I think about the fact that you mentioned the word entrepreneurship, and you mentioned a couple of, of the world's greatest uh, entrepreneurs in history. Um, we, we can also talk about Musk because we talked about him yesterday. Uh, in my opinion, yep. we go down, in my opinion, as the smartest person to walk the planet to date um, for a number of different reasons. <clears throat> Pardon me, and you referenced yesterday, he'll end up being the founder of two trillion dollar companies, which is just <laughs> right. you have those words come out of your mouth. Are incredible, right? But when yeah. you tie that to uh, to entrepreneurship, and you think back, yeah. you know, literally 
millennium where the you know entrepreneurs of historical times versus today you talk about the the constitution providing the opportunity for everybody to have the right. opportunity to grow a build or grow a business versus whether or not they were uh under the favor of the ruling party or the monarchy at the time uh you know historically right. this is much different than what they were experiencing back then and that's why it's so important for us to protect the Constitution and the Bill of Rights as we move forward, because it's under attack right now. We would both agree, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, it's interesting is you hear you hear this phrase all the time, something on the order of uh, uh, democracies uh, only last two hundred years. Right. Uh, and I, I think that? the Tocqueville had something like that in there, or whatever. But and, and we all we we kind of viscerally, you know, with our knowledge of history, understand that. Rome didn't last forever. Greece didn't last forever. The Britain, British pound fell. They, you know, like. However, here, here's my point about this. There's only one democracy in the history of the world that has the U.S. Constitution as its governing document, and right. that one hasn't failed yet. And and if I deep down in, I'm an optimist. Deep down in, I'm a patriot. I described as being an Eagle Scout, all that. I believe our founders were able to craft a document that will let us outlast that statement. Uh, I hope I'm the right. Greatest black swan in history, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Think about what you know. These black swans, things happen out of nowhere. Like you know, like all swans are white until you see a black one. Well, gosh, if you go back to the 1700s. I would be living at the same living standards as my father and grandfather, maybe a little bit better, but I, I would assume my kids are going to have about the same living standards as my grandfather. And then all of a sudden at in this late 1700s, there's this straight parabolic move in wealth. And, and to me, it, it, there, there are no coincidences like that. That was the power of the U S constitution and the, giving the right to inventors to own their invention, the, 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 the fire of invention and the power of self-interest to, to create wealth. And so America is the greatest black swan. See, I, I actually call it a white swan because black connotes bad and black, right. you know, white's good, white, black hat, white hat, all that mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's the greatest black swan ever because no one could have anticipated that the United States would have done what it has done. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, you also referenced um, there was a correlation between um, non-defense governmental spending and also a, I'll call it an exodus from spiritual and religious practice uh, in this country. Right. Talk a little bit about that, because when you talk about ideas, I love the way you put it. You say the ideas, they, you, they didn't come from you. Ideas come right. from divine intervention or a right. spiritual piece. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. You know, Sandy, I, I, as you said, I've written two books, and so that means I've spent a lot of time sitting in front of the keypad, uh, you know, just trying to come up with a way to say things or something like that. And, I, you know, I'm, this is, I don't, I don't even know if I should tell this story about myself, but it's the way I think of the world. And that is all of a sudden I'll, I'll see, oh, 
that I'll come up with an idea. An idea will pop into my brain, and man, it just flows on the keyboard. It works out great. It fits the point I want to make perfectly. And and I do what those running backs do in the end zone, you know. And as I'm like, thank you, Lord, because I don't believe ideas come from me. They're manna from heaven. Mm-hmm. All right. So so then then let's transfer that. This is one one of the things that worries me the most about the U.S. and the globe today. You know, government spending, as we as we said, went from 2.5% of GDP to 27% of GDP, tenfold increase in the size of government. Well, the, every dime the government spends comes from the private sector. So if government is 10% of the economy, then that's like putting 10 people in the wagon. Yep. And then the other 90 people have to pay for it, have to pull the wagon. Well, that was 1935. We get to 1980, now government is 17% of the economy, and we have 17 people in the wagon, and there are 83 people pulling. So which one of those wagons goes faster? You know, 83 pulling 17 or 90 pulling 10? Well, the more people you have in the wagon... The fewer people pulling, the slower you grow. Mm -hmm. And now today we're at 27% of GDP, which is a massive increase. So now we have over 25%, 27% of of the economy in the wagon. And that means only 73% are pulling, 73 are pulling. And I I made a joke in my speech. I'm like, of those 73, 13 work for the government. So we probably ought to put them in the wagon too. But, But nonetheless... So the, the whole point I'm getting to is that the more people we put in the wagon, the bigger we grow government, the harder it is to pull the wagon, the slower we grow. And, and a few couple of stats, between 1980 and 2000, that was Reagan and Clinton with the Bush and one in the middle, mm-hmm. um, the U.S. economy grew 3.4% a year, real GDP. Mm-hmm. That's pretty rapid compared to history. Mm-hmm. Since 2000, it's been 1.7. So, so we've cut our growth in half as we've been, we've made the wagon harder to pull. We have these all these great technologies. Everyone pulling the wagon is stronger, if you will, more productive than they were 40 years ago. But we're still unable to pull the wagon very fast. And so, there are a lot of conservatives who I hear all the time. They complain about how hard it is to pull the wagon, how we only have 1.7% growth, how, you know, there are people with their, you know, it's like they're, they're always kind of complaining about that. And I, and I get that because it's true. But I believe there's a deeper issue going on here. And that is when you, God put us here on earth to, to, in his image. We're creators. We are supposed to serve our fellow man and it, and 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 i also believe that we're our brother's keepers so so you know the question is how many of our brothers and sisters need to be kept because we know there are people that absolutely need our help all right we know that and and the question i always have is how many out of every hundred people in the world uh, or in the United States, how many of those people absolutely can't do it on their own? They are there for any reason whatsoever. And I would argue that number is probably, let's call it five. I think that's mm-hmm. too many. 
five out of a hundred, but let's just call it five. Well, right now we have twenty-seven people in the wagon. Yep. That means there's twenty-two people that shouldn't be there. And if you allow yourself to sit in a wagon, in other words, re receive entitlements from other people when you are not, you shouldn't be in the wagon. Then, then what happens is your soul starts to die, and yep. that's the that. That's the thing that that bothers me the most. And you go back in history, in in uh, uh, pre-French Revolution in the UK, it was gin. Everybody drank gin. Everybody was drunk all the time. In in Soviet Russia, it was vodka. Uh, in the U.S., we have an opioid problem. We have. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are there are people doing drugs all over the place. And and I believe those are signs. That, that say there's part of the, of the society's soul is dying. And so the only way to fix that is to, to get people out of the wagon. The problem is the more that more people count on government, and this was the chart that I, that I used, you, know, you go back pre-1960, and uh, uh, the, there have been polls done, Pew Research did the poll, uh, where they ask people every year, and they've been doing it for almost 100 years, uh, are you a member of a church or a synagogue? And 70 plus 72, 73, 74% of people would say, yes, they're a member of a church and a synagogue. Well, that number today is now down to 47. Mm -hmm. And this breaks my heart. Not because you have to be a member of a church, but, but what I believe it shows a sign of is that people are now believing in government more than they believe in God. They, mm -hmm. they, their higher power is now government. And as a result, I think that's the root of a lot of our society's problems today. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Brian. And I tell you that when I think about over the course of the last 40 years to 50 years, and I go, I go right to Saul Alinsky, and I go to Rules for yeah. Radicals, and I, and I go to that whole crew, and what they've been able to do, in my opinion, in terms of infiltration of the education system and the bureaucracy of the federal government. Um, and that's why we see what we've seen over the course of the last three to five years, most specifically, and really more glaring, because I think that they've grown in their, um, their uh, braveness uh, <laughs> to just right. do what they want to do, whereas they were right. hiding some of their actions year over year uh, preceding the last three to five years. I almost look at, you want to talk about a, a black swan. I mean, Trump's presidency you know, is looked by looked at by a lot of people as a black swan. Um, but totally. for those that were paying attention, it, it was no surprise. For those that right. were really paying attention, it was no surprise. He spoke to a very underserved portion of the population and probably that 40-some-odd percent of the people that we're talking about here today. And that doesn't mean the evangelical Christians alone. It means anybody that had some level of spirituality in their life, some level right. of religious connection. And I believe that to your point, where government replaces the quote-unquote religion in your life, it's what they can't provide is a sense of community, is a sense of belonging to something bigger right. than itself. You become a, a ward of the state versus a member of a, of a community that's built, ideally, right. built around love and caring for your fellow, <coughs> fellow right. human beings, you know? And so yeah. I think that is part of the great ill, to, to your point, uh, of what we're seeing here today. You talked about right. You know, you know what, Sandy? Let me just interrupt one quick second. Sure. I there there are 
there are really four entities, institutions, if you will. This is the way I look at it in society. There's government, and it has a role. All right, I, I am not an anarchist by far. Government has a role. There, there are there are churches and community groups. Doesn't have to be. I'm not trying to be overly religious here. You know, have God save you. Whatever. That's up to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there are churches. There are families. And there are individuals. And each one of those, in the Bible, it actually talks about the responsibility of each one of those. Mm -hmm. But you don't even have to go to the Bible. You just have to think, what should be the responsibility of each of those groups? And government has slowly, but it used to be that churches took care of the poorest among us. They're the ones that opened orphanages. orphanages. They're the ones that had soup kitchens. And government has slowly but surely taken over the role of the church, uh, you know, whether they did it because of the rules were radical or just because they, they just, they just, you know, people think it's more fair or, you know, it might be good intentions gone bad, but nonetheless they did that now they, you know, in Virginia, they want to take over the role of the family, uh, which is we, you know, this is one of the reasons why Glenn Youngkin won that election because people were so mad at the schools telling them that their kids they shouldn't, the parents didn't have a role in teaching their kids. And then with the individual, that's the person that's sitting in the wagon that's not taking personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so we need to get back to some kind of more normal distribution of responsibilities between the government, between uh, the church and the community, between the family I and the individual. And, and I, this may seem weird, but the only way to do that is cut the size of government. And I don't know I don't think how that's weird at all. Uh, Ryan, I think yeah. huh, there, therein lies yeah. the great challenge for us, right? Where is right. the next Ronald Reagan, right? Where, yeah. I mean, where is that person, you know, in our country right now that's going to be willing to stand up and truly fight? I, you know, again, love or hate Trump, there were a lot of things that he did to reduce the size of government that I agreed with, uh, you know, right. especially in terms of cutting through a lot of the bureaucratic red tape and, right. uh, you know, his position of... of eliminating a certain number of, of um, laws, et cetera, for everyone that they put on the books. They took three or four off right. the books. Uh, and I think right. we were successful in that regard. But I, I want to go back to the deeper issue, which is there's, there's that, that shift of, of the public thinking that they can get better care from their government than they can from their spiritual community. And I think that right. is a byproduct of there's been an erosion of trust over the course of the last few decades. Right. And we can talk about any religion. I, it really makes no difference. Okay. Yep. Um, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with Neil Howe and William Strauss and their work. I am not. I am. I'm sorry. So they, they wrote a wonderful book called Generations. I, I, I recommend Generations to not everybody, to be honest with you. It's a book that I would highly recommend you pick up. It's an incredible read. Generations by William Strauss and Neil Howe. Neil Howe works with Edgeye, um, and he's, a, he's an economist, a socioeconomist as well. He also wrote a book called The Thirteenth Generation and the Fourth Turning. The reason I reference it is because he talks about the erosion of trust in these civic authorities and civic organizations that are out there, and government specifically. And I think that it's all, I think of it as like a pool of water, and the trust is the pool of water, and it keeps washing back and forth in the mix of trust or percentage of trust, if you will. Um, you know, right. changes with the times. I think we're ripe. And you mentioned the word revival uh, in your speech. Yep. And, and I, I couldn't did. agree with you more. And I see that happening at a very grassroots level. My big question, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this to you. I, the big question is, 
is there is there enough time left for us to to reverse the tide, if you will, knowing that we're battling, I would say, tools and resources that we have not seen before in the form of big data, social media, and their partnerships with, uh, um, you know, global governments uh, around the world. Right. Like, how do we fight that as individual Americans, as small business owners? You know, what can those folks do to push back and, and really rediscover what you call the real answer, which is freedom, America, in the first place? Right. Yeah, that is that is the answer. I, you know, I, I, I think I finished off my talk by saying we need Hillsdale. We need more Hillsdales. Um, and I, I, revivals happen when when people hit bottom, if you will. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not a not trying to be the historian of record here or anything like that. And I can't go back and and tell us all the different histories of every revival, every you know, like the the U.S. throughout. Britain, we, you know, we we ended up having the revolution. I I wouldn't call for a revolution, but we need a re, we we need individual like revival better. Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. And and so, but but I think partly, I'm hoping that what we're doing is we're seeing it happen now. You know, one of the things about the internet era, we you know, social media it has benefits and it has costs, and 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 we could talk about those i think a lot a lot of uh the issues like where people get so angry about things it is a lot driven by social media it's a it's a loss of personal faith i do agree with all of that but i also come back and it's it's just the raw size of the government yep. and that's what we we need to we need to change so are people willing to take more responsibility and it's kind of fascinating because I think we're kind of getting to the end of people's willingness to, to put up with what government's doing with the pandemic. Although I look at Australia and New Zealand and people are apparently, they, they're fighting back in some cases, but they're willingly going to these camps for 14 days. And um, it's, it, it's all about trying to save myself. I, I, I'm really weirded out by some of this. But, but the way I look at the polls today there is something going on in America, and it, yeah. and by the way, Republicans, re Republicans, they got a lot to prove to me because so Amen. far they've been they've Amen. been part of this growth in government. So so just having Republicans win doesn't mean anything. Like necessary, they have to do the right things when they get there. Yeah, well, <laughs> at the risk of naming, uh, you know, a sitting U.S. senator. Mitt Romney's a Republican, and, uh, you know, yeah. a little bit nervous. I got to be honest with you. Exactly. But, 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 you know, to that point, you know, it, I'm weirded out by what's going on in Australia as well. I don't know if you saw what happened with, with uh, Jokovic, the tennis player yeah, yesterday. I did. Being detained, he was detained for like over seven hours. Uh, and right. then ultimately said, you can't come into the country. What has happened over there is absolutely seismic uh, in terms of right. uh, when you think about the global implications and I almost look at it as the petri dish for the Great Reset, where they're seeing how far can they yep. push, uh, you know, a, a, a population of a country into, you know, uh, obedience uh, and, and unquestioned obedience. Uh, I don't know that everybody is uh, uh, right. abiding by these government mandates right. and, and um, this authoritarian lockdown that you see over there, because I see enough on social media. And to your point about social media, uh, Brian, it's an amplification of both good and bad. Yep. That's all it really is. It's the megaphone right. for folks. So it makes a perspective seem or appear bigger 
then it maybe really is, right? Uh, right. It does have the possibility or um, it does have the potential to create wildfire-like uh, events. Look at what happened in Egypt. Uh, you know, obviously, right. you know, this, the, the Arab Spring is, is a perfect example. But, but I agree with you. Right. You know, there is an opportunity for us here right now to, to stop it, to take it back. There is definitely a palpable undercurrent in this country right now of frustration on the part of the individual right. citizen. And I see the conflict, and you tell me if you see the same thing, I see the conflict from citizen to citizen, where that, that's where the division comes in, and, and right. that's what troubles me the most, is people that were friends for decades and have right. a difference of opinion on one issue, one issue that, that quite honestly, politicians have turned into life and death. We can, I think, arguably say right now, dying from COVID and dying of COVID are two different things. Right. Significantly different things. They've, they've been completely um, uh, misrepresented by the media, in my yep. opinion. And so it's it's created this this fear. You talked about the maskless society like you don't like the mask up uh, routine, nor do I. I think it's crazy. Right. Uh, it dehumanizes, yep. as you said. Talk a little bit yep. about that. You were, you were at Hillsdale. You talked about that. Yeah, I did. I, I mean, that's where we've gone. We we we're, you know, I, I still. I still, I don't know if I will, in the rest of my life, understand why we've done some of the things we do, other than it's just out of pure fear. But, but these masks, uh, especially on kids, how do you learn to speak when you can't see the lips of your teacher move? Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm talking three, four, five, six, seven-year-old kids. They, this is, it, and, and also, when you put a mask on, you, you don't walk by your neighbor. You walk by a bundle of germs. Yep. That, those, that's not your neighbor who, you know, it, it's, it's somebody that's going to infect you and you're going to die. And so they, by the way, a lot of this started um, back in the subprime crisis. I don't know if you remember this, but they used to, I mean, I know you remember the subprime crisis. I know where you're going. I, this one particular part where they would say, if you have some, you know, loser in your neighborhood who bought, got a subprime loan and now his house is down or her house is down 40%, it's going to drag your, so now you hate your neighbor and because they dragged your house price down. And so now you look at your neighbor as a bundle of germs. And, and so what, what we're doing, you know, to go back to that, we have government, we have the church, we are the community, we have the family and we have the individual, and we're putting wedges in all of those. Yeah. The, the, the one good thing, Sandy, I could say about this is the Internet age, the, the social media, everything moves faster. Yeah. So I believe if we were 40 years ago right now, 50 years ago right now, that the Fed could have printed all this money, but we wouldn't have seen inflation already at 7%. Uh, we wouldn't have seen gas price, you know, oil prices up to 80 so quickly. Yeah. That, that in other, I get it, we're locking down, we have supply chain issues, all that. But, but what, in internet time, everything moves faster. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, you know, they make a bad mistake in policy, and it shows up right away. Uh, and the it's other thing... to hide from it, too. Right. And, you know, they called, there's just a, a, it's kind of off subject a little bit, but, but Reagan, they called Reagan the Teflon president yep. because nothing stuck to him. All right. You know, and that's, and what that really meant is I wish that this would stick to him, but nobody cares because everybody's happy. 
Because when you when you follow good policies, you get higher incomes, you get lower inflation, you get more growth, you get more opportunity, uh, you get less pain in society, everything's easier, life is easier, life is getting better. When you follow bad policies, uh, um, things get bad, and today they get bad really quickly. Yep. And so I've had people say, well, Reagan was the Teflon president. That means Joe Biden is the cast iron uh, skillet president um, because everything sticks to him. And and, yeah. and that seems to be what's happening now. I hope that what people realize is that the pain they're feeling, high gas prices, high food prices, shortage of cars, all of those things, the pain, those pains, they realize they came from government. I, so, sometimes I worry that we don't know that. And that's where the Republicans come in. I, 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 they have to explain this, but they're, they, to me, so far, they're not doing a very good job of that. Ryan, I read a book years ago called The Panama Papers, and uh, it really stung me because it was the first red pill moment of my life, to be completely honest with you. I said, wow, you know, and, and by the way, right. a few of them are still sitting senators in Congress today uh, who were flat out named in the book. That's the part that, right. I, you know, really troubles me the most is that when you speak about, not speak specifically about Republicans, but we talk about any political party uh, at this point, whether independent, right. Democrat, Democrat or Republican, um, they are so busy with their hands out looking for what they can take in that they're not busy doing the work that they're supposed to be doing of the federal government. Right. right? So, and I think, right. you know, we alluded to that before and how it has a compound effect. Um, I don't know who yep. our 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 uh, saving graces will be. We talk. You talk about the two senators, Manchin and Cinema, um, you know, playing a role. That you, you talk about. I think you talked about the Schechter brothers as well. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. with FDR, right? Yeah, yeah. People don't. That's just a little, little, little known story. But way back in the Great Depression, FDR. Something people put should that, know. Yeah, they put that. He put that massive regulatory. Uh, uh, apparatus in place because they were going it, to it's like it's like australia today shutting down we're going to control the virus he was going to control the economy um and we hear today i mean joe biden's going to control the meat producers and the oil production and like this is a tendency of politicians throughout history and life but anyway that one of the things that that regulatory regulatory rule did was it used to go in and, and you went into a to buy a chicken <clears throat> and the Schechter brothers sold chickens, and you would pick out the one you wanted. Well, the government said, that's not right. We have to do this randomly. <laughs> like, it's the craziest rule ever. Uh, I laugh when I hear about oh. it. And so the chickens have to be in the back room, and then they have to, you know, close their eyes and pick one, like, whatever. The Schechter brothers said, this is ridiculous. They took it all the way to the Supreme Court. They were basically illiterate um, immigrants to the United States, and they won. And that shut down FDR's regulatory apparatus. By the way, that's why he threatened to pack the court, um, the Supreme Court back in the 30s. <clears throat> it was all because of these two brothers. So I'm like, hey, if the Schechter brothers can do it, maybe Manchin and Cinema can do it as well. Maybe I'm well wishing. <laughs> no, but, you know, I said it to you yesterday. I'm a little uneasy placing the fate of the United States in the hands of two sitting senators. I don't have a lot of faith in that body at this point, to be right. honest with you. There's a few there that I believe are there for the right reasons, for the most part. Right. Uh, I, you know, uh, the, the, 
the the altruism in me uh, wants to believe that. But you know, it brings me to another question when we talk about the Supreme Court, and and I think when we look back, you know, five, ten, twenty yeah. years from now on the three appointments to the Supreme Court that Trump uh, did manage to get done, and all right. by virtue constitutionalists, I think. Uh, would be a good way to describe virtually all three of them. Would you agree? Yeah, I I totally would agree. And 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 like I said before, this country hasn't failed yet, and we have the Constitution. As long I think as we protect it, the mm-hmm. rule of law, the right of individuals to retain their the the benefits of their inventions, their writings. I don't think I I, I don't believe we're going to fail. I think our I I, I think our founding fathers knew exactly what they were doing and it's going to work. I, I, I can also see that we don't, that we don't follow that path that I, I think the Supreme court will be good in terms of its decisions. I'm just hoping voters actually, you know, here, one of the things that, that I have believed in forever and ever and ever, and I know you probably have too, and lots of, of the people viewing this is school vouchers. We, we need choice. Like, oh comp- you, know, you know, just today, I haven't done the tweet yet, but just today, President Biden comes out and he goes, the reason meat prices are so high is we don't have enough competition. There's only four meat producers. And I'm like, so my tweet is going to oh, be Lord. something along the lines of, there's four meat producers, two political parties, and one uh, 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 Chicago public school system. Which one doesn't have enough competition? Right. And, and, and so... I, I actually think that people are, we're seeing more and more people homeschooling, schooling, more, I mean, demand for private schools is through the roof right now. Not everybody can afford that, but uh, the pressure for more charter schools is growing every and each and every day. That's one of the key things that could change our world in the years ahead. It's well, the young that have to be, that have to, that have to be allowed to learn about Western civilization, about the virtues of Aristotle, about how to live a good life, uh, responsibility. And we don't teach that anymore. And I think it, we will if we can get more vouchers, more choice in the education system. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I am a um, 1985 graduate of Bergen Catholic High School in Oradell, New Jersey. I'm giving them a shout out right now. Uh, my yep. son followed in my footsteps years later. He's a 2020 graduate of the school. Uh, it was not a small investment for my wife and I uh, to right. enroll my son there and pay for it over the four years that he was there. Well over $100,000 investment, plus the taxes that I paid in New Jersey uh, right. for the school that he wasn't even going to. Um, right. My daughter goes to public school. It's a wonderful public school. It's a very highly rated educational uh, uh, facility with great teachers. But there is an element in the school which I am not uh, entirely comfortable with, to be honest with you. Right. Um, not from a pure education perspective, but from a little bit of the um, indoctrination piece, which I, we spoke about before. Right. Uh, but I agree with you. Yeah, we have to be, just like anything else out there, we have to be held accountable for the performance of the product that we are, are creating. Yep. And the product is the student that, that ends right. up graduating from these institutions. Uh, you know, I don't agree with uh, Richard Dreyfus 100% politically, uh, I'm sure. But, you know, Richard <laughs> Dreyfus, the actor, 
He's got a, a, an initiative out there called the Dreyfus Civics Initiative, which, you know, what he wanted to do or wants to do is, is reintroduce and, and uh, refocus on teaching civics at the high school right. level. And, and boy, is he spot on. We may not agree politically, yep. but he's, he, is, he is right on the money there. We have, we have lost our way in the education system in terms of teaching people what's important and what's actually true. Uh, in my right, opinion, you know exactly. You know one of the one of the things that I've said in many talks and to all, you know, uh, uh, at First Trust we have we have a lot of people that are thirty and forty years old, mm -hmm. and I, I'm like, if you're not over fifty, if you if you're not over fifty, you don't remember viscerally the inflation of the seventies. You may have read about it, you may, but you haven't lived it, and and that doesn't mean I'm not trying to be an old fogey, but but one of the things that led to Reagan, and and Volcker was his sidekick, if you will. Yep. Uh, they did the, they pulled the levers the right way to get growth up, inflation down. One of the reasons that we ended up with Reagan, and one of the reasons Carter was a one-term president, was the inflation. Yep. And and so so if that inflation can actually make people realize, man, government can really mess up my life. I don't want so much of it. Uh, and then you see it with the school system. You see it with people fed up with mandates and, and COVID policy and all of those things. We're, we're setting up, in a sense, to find somebody like Reagan. Um, I just don't know who it is. And I don't want to bet on a horse or, or say anybody, but we need no. somebody no. like that. You know, the thing about Reagan... The difference between, I think, between Reagan and, and Trump is that Reagan could take a position that was pretty radical and do it in a grandfatherly way. And, and, and Trump, President Trump, his kids love him. I, I know they do. Somewhere there is, is that grandfatherly, fatherly care and love, but it didn't come across to the American public. And I, and where it did with with Reagan. And so, while I love Trump's policies, he didn't have Reagan's demeanor. Nope. And I don't, I don't know if he can develop it, if he can convince everybody that he's changed it. Probably not. Um, but, but, but we have to find someone who. And I don't want to replace Reagan or have a new Reagan. It needs to be somebody. Oh, someone new, fresh but, ideas about smaller government. Right. How to get there? Right. And proper That's delivery. It. Yeah, I'm going to say this to you about Trump because I have really, I've taken time to study, um, I'll, I'll call his demeanor, but I, it's not really demeanor that I was studying. I look at where he comes from. This is a kid yep. that was born and raised in Queens who fought his yep. way. Now, you could talk about the father and the $10 million seed money all day long. If you didn't grow up in Queens, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about right now. Right. Where did Ronald Reagan grow up? He grew up in California, correct? Right. Yep. Yeah, much different world than growing up on the streets of Queens in what I would consider to be a bloody knuckled real estate market, commercial real estate market. That guy fought every single day to survive. As much as right. it sounds weird to say about a billionaire, he wasn't a billionaire when he was in it. He was very well off. He was upper middle class. There's no doubt. Yep. The reason why he is so gruff and he is so acerbic at times is because that was the only language that was understood and that was the currency of that Manhattan real estate market back then, and Queens, for, yeah. for God's sakes. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, when you put together the construction companies, the the uh, the families that you had to do business with, 100 uh, percent. The, the uh, bureauc bureaucrats that you had to do business with, it was all rough and tumble. Totally agree. What I used to say, yeah, I, I used to describe it, I, I thought he was going to win the whole entire time. And one of my ways of, uh, of, of saying that was, look, when, he, when he's negotiating with somebody, I can just imagine the other side going, look, <laughs> sell him the building at that price. I don't ever want to be in a room nope. with him again. Yeah. And, 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 and in a way, I feel like that's what the voters did. And then they're like, okay, I can't do it again. And, um, and I, you know, I, 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 that's what I think happened. I, but he did. I hope that's happened, what, right? I gotta be Reagan honest. Had, yeah. Yeah. Hope happened because if the, if it's the alternative, quite honestly, uh, then I'm really, I, then I have fears that we can't even talk about right now. Uh, for right. being labeled conspiracy theorists, but I, I really do hope that that is the case because I don't. I think that Washington spit him out like poison because he stuck his his fist right into the spokes of the financial machine uh, that right. was you know spinning at a pretty good clip for decades. Well, um, that's the that's the biggest problem with trying to cut the size of government is that you're you're reversing decades and decades and decades and decades. Of, of bureaucrats, uh, you know, growth and self-interest and yeah. building up and power. Yep. And, and it's, that's where I come back to, you know, I, I know even saying the phrase deep state is like weird, but, but <laughs> it's I, not anymore. I, I think, I, I think it's, it's really, it's, it's not, it's not weird anymore. I think it's so mainstream because people have that seen and felt it. Right. But I, I, again, it's, I don't think it's some secret cabal. No. It's, it's, you know, it's like, how do you get a banana into your grocery store? Well, you get the banana because somebody has to grow it, ship it, truck it, you know, put it on the, you know, pick it, clean, like, clean it, 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 like all that stuff. Okay. Well, how do you get a, 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 a regulation implemented? Well, there's, there's a million bureaucrats and they're, right. they're all working together and they, and they're, and it's the same, it's not competitive like the banana industry or the grocery stores, but it, so it's, it's not a cabal. It's not like they call each other up at night going, here's what we're going to do. It's they, they literally compete against each other for political power. I, I told you, I worked in DC for two years. Yep. The first day I was there, the very first day, Walking down the hall with one of my work, uh, you know, future workmates, new workmate, um, and they go, uh, "What's your next job?" And I'm like, "What do you What do you mean?" And they're like, "You know, two, every two years we all change jobs around here. What's your next one?" Yep. And I'm like, "I haven't even done this one yet." Yep. Like it was so out of the realm of reality to me that I, 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 and I'm like, "That's the way people think here." And it is. They're like, who do I have to step on? What do I have to do? How do I gain more power to get the next better job? And at every two years, I'm going to work on that. And so that's that's the self-interest of these bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and Republicans have all kinds of ideas. Like, I, you know, or conservatives have all kinds of libertarians. Like, let's move the Department of Education to Omaha and, you know, and get it out of D.C. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But that's, well, we, I don't know how we do it, but we have to, the penny plan. 
we're going to cut one penny out of every dollar of spending for the next three years. Okay, that that's that's easier to sell than a big cut to government. Mm-hmm. But but it's but so far nobody's been able to do it. And, well, the, reason and so, why, Brian, the reason is is because they'd rather look at adding just another two or three pennies on top of what we're already spending because it's not going right. to make that much of a difference. You follow me? Right. And so it just yep. compounds. You know the deal. It just compounds yep. over time, sadly. The amazing part yep. to me is there's never a recession in Washington, D.C. or any state capital for that matter. Right. You know, business, the, exactly. the business of government is good business. Uh, if it's, you read it's it. booming. Yeah, they've, they've grown 10 times. I mean, I've been wanting uh, to go back and look at the, the market cap of Berkshire Hathaway versus the government. And I bet you they're not that much different. Um, government has grown 10 times faster than the economy over the last 90 years. That yeah. that number right there just blows my mind. And that's what it's has staggering. to change. It's staggering. And, and the, answer, the answer to all of this is freedom. And, and it, was, it was why we're the black swan, why we've been able to create so much wealth. We have made, uh, like politics these days has made everybody angry toward each other. But I still believe one of the key reasons for that is that government is so big. You know, you think about, I mean, just because you get the most number of votes in a congressional district doesn't mean you're a COVID expert, doesn't mean you should have one 535th vote Amen. for a $4.5 trillion budget. And, and if that budget was only $1 trillion, and I know that's a pipe dream, but it they, they wouldn't it wouldn't be that it, people wouldn't be angry about that as much anymore government is so big the power that comes with controlling pieces of it is so great that people are willing to go to the mattresses to, to fight for that power yes. and um it shouldn't be that way yeah and i i could not agree with you more so uh i i know we have two other questions that we want to ask you before we wrap this has been Beyond fascinating and enjoyable for me, I, I want to thank you, Brian, because you've been generous Hello, Brian. with your time and your yeah. intellect. Thanks, and, Brian. Um, and as I said to you, I think the message that you bring, uh, anything that we can do to continue to to promote and amplify that message, I think will help this country. And I mean that sincerely. I don't I don't want to make you uncomfortable because I know you're not a guy that wants to talk about himself. But Brian, I think we need more Brian Westbury's out there. Mm-hmm delivering more visual speeches, like getting out there so people can see and hear a common sense approach to some really big, complex problems that we're facing. Um, I know Ron had asked that. I'm going to ask the first question. I'm going to let Ron ask the the closing question because I think it's important. Um, Because you talk about, when you think about things, you say you break it down into two parts, the next 12 months and then after that. Right. So I'm going to let Ron ask the final question because it speaks right to how you think about things. I think it's important, but I'll ask this question real quickly because I think it begs an answer from somebody who's got an opinion who I, I completely respect. Do we see this sitting president finish his term or do you think we're going to see a change in the Oval Office before he hits his four years? I'm curious. Yeah, I, I actually think he's going to finish it out. I, yeah. I mean, I, 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 if he's made it this far, I mean, I know what everybody says about him. I, I've seen gaffes. I've seen gaffes from a lot of, a lot of people in government before. But I, I think he makes it. I, yeah. you know, um, and so uh, it, it may or may not be good for the Democrats that he does. Uh, but I actually think he will make it to the end of the term. Interesting. I don't think he's going to run again. I do not. 
I, I agree with you. I, I don't. I think he's he's. It's. I didn't think he was a winning candidate last go around. To be completely right. honest with you, and we can talk about that until the cows come home. But uh, Ron, Ron has another. It's his question. It was a great provocative question. I want him to to hit you with it. All right, and Brian, 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 first and foremost, thank you. You've been gracious with your time, and I have taken some copious notes over here uh, as we've had this conversation. Hashtag WTSD, Brian. Is, Hashtag down. All of it, always. Uh, you made a career out of clearly deconstructing and analyzing data and then really applying the philosophy that has influenced you from that socioeconomic perspective. Uh, how, how would you see you know, this affecting society really over the next six to 12 months? Like what, what are the bigger picture pieces maybe that people can take away from this conversation and then more importantly, maybe apply, but how do you really see it affecting first and foremost uh, society in the next six to 12? Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, thank you, Ron. This is good. I, you know, actually to go back to where you uh, just started, I, I believe the only way to analyze, uh, um, an economy, I'll just talk about economics, is to have a, a model, uh, a, a, a worldview, a frame of reference, because, because what that allows me to do is to take information that I get and realize very quickly whether it's important to the model or not important to the model. And, and so, you know, what, the way I, when I talk to people that are supply-siders, that are uh, Miesians, Hayekians, Friedmanites, I, I'm like, okay, you got the model. And so, because I, I can tell, I mean, I've been living with it so long that, yeah. that that's it. So then you don't get all, you know, carried away by extraneous things. The second thing I would say is that what I think, because of the Constitution, because of, of the, the right to own we, because of technology, we have more opportunity today than, than even in the, in the midst of all this craziness and all this mess, we have more opportunity today than ever before. There's more job, job openings than I ever have seen uh, in the history of the economy. There are so many small businesses that didn't survive that need to be replaced. Entrepreneurship, I think, like, I think people have opportunity today, uh, you know, you know, it's funny, I, I'm, I'll close it off with this. I, I know a lot of financial advisors. I work with a ton of them, uh, thousands and thousands of, over my years. The, the ones that started in 1981, the ones that started in 2008, you know, the world was falling apart, and yet they were able to get a toehold in, in, the, in the middle of that and then grow with, with America after it. They're some of the most successful and happiest people I know. And so there's never a bad time. And in fact, when it when there's blood in the streets, sometimes it's the best time. So yeah. um, you know, rock on. I love it. Yeah, no, totally. And agree with that totally, Brian, because, you know, they say that when there is, as you said, blood in the streets or when things are at a low, just kind of like stock markets, you know, people say, well, buy low and sell high, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, people exactly. have to just recognize that there is this tremendous opportunity if they only go out to one, find the information and make sure it's viable and accurate and relevant, and then go ahead and, and go after what it is you might want to build and look for where those burning issues may lie. And then if, right. it's, if it's something that you're passionate about, which Sandy and I always talk about, it, it, you will be successful because you're going to work right. through those more difficult times.
So I totally agree. Yeah, exactly. And by working through them, you just get stronger, more powerful, better, smarter, faster. And and 10, 15 years and now, from, you know, I'm always I was always amazed when I was a younger younger guy in jobs. I would take a problem to my boss, and he had an answer in like forty two seconds. And I'm like, how do you, how did you know that? And 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 now I get to wow my uh, uh, my uh, uh, the younger uh, guys and gals that work for me because they bring me a problem. I'm like, that's easy. And and they're and because. And I'm not trying to say I'm wise. I'm just old, <laughs> and I've lived through a lot. There's and, no substitute and, and, for experience, Brian. I mean, it's you know, it's nope. an expensive uh, way to learn things very often, but there's no substitute for it. None. And and the only way to get it is to stick to it. Well, chapter nine of the book Thinking for a Rich uh, by Napoleon Hill is is entitled Persistence. And yep. if if the country's in need of one thing right now. It is the ability to persist and persevere and think for ourselves, uh, you know, as individuals. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I can't thank you enough for providing our audience uh, with insights and content that I could have only dreamt of uh, prior to this conversation. Uh, I thank you again for your generosity and for, you know, yeah. being, being willing to just answer uh, a simple Instagram message that I sent to you uh, and a LinkedIn mm -hmm. message that I sent you. It shows the power of social media for something yeah. good, for, for, you know, being able to provide uh, a level of insight and intelligence that a lot of our audience probably wouldn't have had access to if we didn't have the opportunity to sit down with you today. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. Brian thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Brian. How can they follow you? Where can, where can our folks go? Yeah. Like, like, I'm, on, I'm on at Westbury with Twitter. So that's no, no T, W-E-S-B-U-R-Y. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my company is first, I, I work for a money management firm, First Trust Portfolios. And I, I'll, I'll say this slow, it's F-T, First Trust, F-T-P-L-P, as in limited partnerships, uh, dot, dot com. And if you go there, that's my blog. Uh, you can sign up for to get videos. Uh, all, anything we post, we just fire them out. And I promise if you sign up for it, you will never be marketed. So we just send it out. So, well, right. I encourage everybody that's listening to, uh, to go over there and sign up for the RSS feed for Brian's blog. I will do that the minute that we end over here. I also encourage you to go out and order his books. Uh, I've ordered two copies for Ron and I uh, to enjoy as well. And uh, don't forget to like, share, and comment uh, for us on the podcast over here. This is Sandy Cerami my main man, Ron Marvo, and our very special guest, Brian Westbury, saying thank you for spending some time with us today on Icons, Influencers, and Inspirations. Have a great day, everybody. We're out. Great job, Brian. Thank you so yeah. much. Holy thank God. you, Sandy. That was fun. Yeah, no, was fun. It, was, it, it was went fast. Fun. It was. Yeah, it, went, went, it went fast. Faster than I thought it would. So <laughs> that's that's why I'm having fun, man. We've been on for a little over an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's like I was looking at the clock. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's already been like an hour. Brian, I'm, like, I'm just going to no, admit that, this. That, that wasn't a complaint. It was like, that's uh -huh. how fast it was because it was fun. Yeah, so, well, I, I have to confess. I said to Ron, I was I was a little anxious this morning because I've been so looking forward to having a conversation with you. And I didn't want to drag the intellect level down uh, <laughs> with you. No, 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 no. But I, we Never. could on for three hours. Ronald will attest to this. Last night, I spent about two hours distilling down 
all of the notes that I had taken off of your speech, because I've watched yeah. a number of times, all the things that were just in sync and alignment with what I'm seeing. Uh, and I had to distill it down to the 15 that we sent to you, but I had 51 at yeah. one point. Yeah, he's like, yeah. Ron, I just, I said, we're going to keep three hours. I'm not doing <laughs> that. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say we'd have to welcome in 2023. So anyway, uh, if we would have done that. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, great. It was great being with you. There were great questions. Uh, Ron, thank you for your question at the end. And uh, what a perfect way to end it. Yeah, yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Thank you. Brian, you, you're a generous soul. I wish you nothing but safe travels. And we'll be in touch. We'd love to search back with you in six months or so and do this again. Let's see where we're at and see if any lessons have been learned. But we'll be approaching the midterms at that point. So I think right. we're going to see some, some interesting things happening over the course of the next six months. I, I totally agree. Love to be on with you again. Sounds like a plan. Thank All you. Right. Thank you, Brian. All right. God bless. Yep. God Take bless, care. God God bless you guys. Thank you. That's a wrap on episode number one of Icons, Influencers, and Inspirations with the incomparable Brian Westbury, chief economist over at First Trust Advisors and the number one ranked economic forecaster in the United States. Make sure you click the subscribe button, like, and share, whether you're on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Podcasts. And check us out on Instagram. Give us a follow at icons.influencers.inspirations. We'll see you on the next episode. Time to step up to stand out. We are out.